Welcome to the A Fire podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? How do we become better investors, leaders, and global citizens? For more, here's your host and the CEO of AFIRE, Gunnar Branson. Everyone talks about the fundamental threat that COVID and working from home present to office owners and operators. The question is, will office use and therefore demand return to normal once this is over? Or will a good number of office workers never return, therefore keeping demand low? In the absence of any real data, how can we even begin to answer that question? Anecdotal evidence right now probably isn't enough. And that's why I'm talking today with Chris Moyo. He's the VP of Data and Research at Madison International Realty. He is finding unique sources of data to construct a clearer picture of what is happening right now and what is likely to happen in the future. So thank you, Chris, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Chris, you wrote uh, for our winter issue a, a fantastic piece along with your uh, colleague, Adrian uh, Kay, an article called Office Pace, where you kind of cut through a lot of the kind of speculation and discussion around how office space demand is changing. And certainly with 11 billion square feet of office space in the U.S., right now, and with 42% of the labor force, uh, according to the Stanford Institution for Economic Policy Research, working from home right now, and potentially, uh, you know, it seems like a lot of employers are talking about employees staying in their work from home habit at least two to three days a week after COVID is over. This has got a big impact, and, and, and people have been talking a lot in different directions about what this means and, and, and how they should be rethinking their uh, real estate strategies around commercial, around office. Um, but you took a different approach with Madison, very data-centric and finding some interesting sources of data. So can you talk to me a little bit, just to start, how you're looking at this problem? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So the genesis was, uh, you know, we went to remote work at the start of the pandemic, like most uh, employers that could did. And there were a lot of stories of, is this the new normal working from home, remote work? There were a lot of anecdotes and and news headlines of so, such and such tech firm is considering full remote workforce. And, you know, we've seen sort of major financial firms and and you know, real estate holders say, we believe employees will return to the office after the pandemic. We really wanted to get something quantitative and less anecdotal um, into our analysis, just to give us sort of a, a broader perspective. You know, one of the things that happens with headlines and news articles is you really get a limited sampling of, of name brands that attract clicks. And you don't really know, is that indicative of what the overall picture is? So what Adrian and myself did is we decided to look at Corporate earnings statements. So we scraped, I think it's now uh, as of the fourth quarter, over 3,000 of them for mentions of remote work and, and phrases related to remote work to find out, you know, how were companies and, and most particularly executives who make these decisions thinking about remote work? Are they happy with their setups post pandemic? 
And what does that mean if they are or aren't for the office sector and demand going forward? That's an interesting source of data, and I think it's it's a wonderful place to kind of look at the analytics in terms of what people are actually doing. Uh, what did you learn? Yeah, so what we learned was uh, generally there is a positive sentiment towards remote work, and it has shifted even more positively over time. Although the fourth quarter saw a little bit of a give back, but the sentiment among corporate executives is positive towards the remote work habits and, and the impact on productivity and and communications and some other phrases we ran through our analysis. We believe that given this overall positive sentiment, remote work is going to remain a feature of the US labor force and office market post pandemic. It's just a matter of degrees. And one of the other things we wanted to seek out was sort of, is there a uniform risk across the US? Are there different industries or markets that that have varying could have varying impacts from this shift. Now, a lot of people have been talking about, uh, you know, people uh, on one hand say, all right, everyone's gonna be working from home and therefore the office demand will go down. However, that may be mitigated from the various safety protocols that are calling for more space per worker. Is that a true mitigant or, and, and is that a mitigant that might go away once uh, the crisis passes and everyone has a vaccine? How do you see that equation working in terms of a, a negative force taking people away from the office, a positive force, which is more space per worker? Yeah, so in aggregate, we believe it's going to be a negative force as remote work remains a feature of the workforce. Our conversations with industry participants and brokers have, have indicated to us that there is not a lot of demand to increasing space or, or leasing additional space to help accommodate social distancing and uh, more space per employee. Uh, so that's why we believe in the aggregate, remote work is going to be sort of a negative for space demand going forward. You know, if people are able and adopt hybrid models where they're home two to three days per week, you wind up with more effective space per employee every day. It just becomes more of sort of like an airline overbooking function. You just hope not everyone shows up on the same day. Um, but we believe that this you know, we'll sort of create flex for employers to absorb new employees into existing space if not everyone is in the office on the same day. And yet at the same time, I, I keep kind of looking at the two to three days uh, in the office uh, that everyone says that will, or a lot of people say that we're going to move towards. And you mentioned it right there, the, the kind of traffic jam in terms of everyone coming in the same day. Most people will want to take Monday and Friday to work from home, and then we're all compressed into the middle of the week. Do you have any thoughts around that in terms of how that how we mitigate, you know, how many people are in the office at the same time? Are, are there any discussions around that? So we haven't seen anything in the aggregate. I can speak anecdotally from how we've discussed it internally and how I've uh, had some colleagues sort of bat the ideas around. That really comes down to a logistical problem. And you can set up space reservation and, and ensuring there aren't too many people in an office on a given day. That doesn't seem like too hard of a problem to solve for with just you know some simple scheduling or, or calendar utilization. Uh, so I, there will be times where there's overbooking and the office is crowded, but you know I, I don't think that's something that would necessarily dissuade employers from taking on such a large cost of leasing additional space to avoid the handful of occasions where that may happen. Now, what you talked about the positive sentiment um, that, that you're getting from scraping all these reports. Um, 
what kinds of things are they saying about work from home? What are the positives? Uh, because I, I think I hear a lot of the negatives in terms of I can't see people. I'm not there. I can't do the casual things. It's hard for me to board new employees. But what are they saying on the positive side? You know, one of the positives that has really jumped out from the analysis is around communication and the effectiveness of remote communications tools, uh, Slack, Teams, uh, video chatting. Generally, people seem happy with their ability to communicate across the firm and employees and coordinate and get things done. It may take a little longer if someone's not at their desk at that exact moment. And you do maybe lose that sort of water cooler, random spark of inspiration moment. But communication has definitely been one of the, the sentiments that has jumped out the most to the positive. Uh, you did highlight some of the, the more negative aspects that came out in the analysis, which was onboarding and company culture. Um, there are concerns among executives that remote work is great for a time and with established employees, at, for the most part, who already knew each other and allows that company culture to you know, be maintained. But as you grow and people remain remote for longer, that could erode over time. I know several financial firms have cited that when they initiated return to office programs earlier, uh, later in 2020, before, you know, um, the COVID situation changed once again. Are you able to see any trends that have occurred within this year of COVID uh, in terms of shifts, changes, where things are going? Actually, no, it's been remarkably stable, which was interesting. I mean, the first quarter when everything hit, saw the lowest positive, so still positive, but the lowest aggregate positive sentiment. It gradually grew more positive in Q2 and Q3. Q4 saw a slight give back, but these, these metrics are all really tightly grouped. And it's been a very consistent, slightly positive reading every time we've run this analysis and updated it. Now, you did another thing that I found kind of interesting in terms of creating a risk index uh, on a comparative market basis in terms of different cities. Um, and obviously, different industries are more amenable to work from home than others. Uh, can you explain that a little bit in terms of uh, why different cities are going to have different risks and why they've laid out the way they have with it looks like D.C. has the highest risk uh, in terms of exposure to work from home. But can you explain that a little bit? Finding out that remote work at a positive sentiment was all well and good. But, you know, the investment professionals in, in our firm asked, how do, how do you make this actionable? And we had to sort of do an analysis to show there there's a disparity across markets, and that's a result of their differing labor forces. Uh, you mentioned in your question that different industries have different capabilities, and that's something that the Dallas Fed and, and McKinsey have confirmed in analysis they've conducted where different types of jobs have different propensities and abilities to work from home. So different markets have different proportions of these jobs, and therefore, if you sort of aggregate it up, the labor force of a city means it could face a higher or a lower risk from work from home. <clears throat> work from home. When we look at that then, um, where you know you have different markets that have different risks associated uh, in, in terms of impacts on office demand, how should or, or what are some of the things that an investor should be thinking about in terms of how to invest in office uh, now and, and for the next couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. So an investor, if they're looking at an asset, they should really take a careful look at their tenancy, their nearby tenancy tenant base and the you know local economy of the market they're looking at an asset in. If they have rollover in tenancy where they're going to need to fill occupancy, 
And it's one of these industries where there is a high propensity from work from home is sort of dominating that market or submarket. I would be a little cautious in my underwriting about how long it's going to take me to fill backfill that space that's empty. It would also sort of flow through to rank growth. So it's sort of we believe it should be used as a guideline for how conservative or aggressive you are in your underwriting assumptions as you're evaluating the tenancy of an asset. Yeah. And, and certainly implies to me that if you have some vacancy in one of these higher risk industries or markets, that you perhaps are needing to think about conversion or looking at how you upgrade what the what the value proposition is for that office. Yeah, you should definitely be looking at the value proposition. Conversion gets into you know the costs and the zoning of specific assets, so it can be difficult um, and not always feasible. But it definitely is something where you should look at what is my offering, how is it competitive within my my marketplace and, and my peer set, in order to help guide yourself when you're underwriting your specific uh, investment. Well, the implication for that is whether you're dealing with a longer uh, lease up time period or changing the value proposition or at the most expensive conversion, it's going to cost more money. Yep. I, it, that seems to be the the, the bottom line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you own space in New York and D.C., be prepared. It's not going to be an easy road for a while. Yeah. And, and it's interesting you bring up New York. New York is a, a market that's also seeing a lot of new office supply come to market, you know, one Vanderbilt, Hudson Yards, there's, there's a lot of brand and new space coming to the market, which will also be competitive with, you know, assets you may hold or maybe looking at. So it's worth considering, you know, if I have a tenant base that uh, is at risk for remote work and there's brand shiny new space competing with me, exactly how long am I going to assume it's going to take me to backfill? And what kind of rents can I command? Uh, and certainly that rent pressure, I think, is going to be interesting. And, and maybe it's time. I mean, think about the top markets like San Francisco, New York, and where their rents are. Uh, perhaps this corrective will help maybe not the individual owners of those buildings, but certainly will help the overall health of those cities in terms of being able to attract uh, new businesses and startups, et cetera. Uh, to grow those economies. So depending on whether you're someone observing the cities and caring about the cities themselves, or you're sitting there on an office building that perhaps is not Hudson Yards, that that may be of great concern as we go forward. Yeah, absolutely. There's two sides to every market. So, you know, if, if one side's seeing a little pain, someone else is probably gaining. All right. So you've looked in some other areas that you didn't cover um, in the article. You looked at retail, and, and, and certainly everyone is terrified <laughs> in the retail environment with good reason. Uh, what are you seeing there? Yeah, so we kept the article focused just to the office sector. But one of the interesting flow-throughs is if people are working from home two to three days a week, there's going to be fewer people in CBDs on a long-term basis going forward. So there But the flip side of that is there will be more people at home yeah. on a, on a long-term basis. And you know, retailers have been struggling before mm -hmm. the pandemic and the pandemic certainly has not helped and made things worse. And now you sort of look at retailers and CBD and it's what is their viability at current rent levels with 60 to 50 percent of the traffic level they were experiencing beforehand? If you remove a lot of the employees from a CBD, those retail markets are going to need to recalibrate to a new sort of foot traffic and spending level. The upside of that is you know, in, in more residential areas, retail may see a boon in flows as people are home more and going out to lunch or, or ordering lunch more at home. 
because they're there working. Well, and, and kind of nice uh, in, in so many ways because you're creating more of a 24 in, in, in in markets other than, say, New York or San Francisco, you're creating more of a 24-hour demand for retail in particular parts of the country. Although, obviously, the density is not as great, which is not awesome for retailers. Did you look at any other asset classes? So, I mean, dovetailing with the, the narrative for retail was uh, residential. I mean, if people don't need to go into the office every day, if they're going in two to three days a week or one week they go in and one week they don't, does the does the necessity of the importance of commute times to making housing decisions become lessened? And as a result, do cheaper, further out suburbs start to see more population flows as a result of that? Now, we've seen during the pandemic a flight to the suburbs from the major metros. You know, there's been robust housing data across the country, particularly in the suburbs of New York. And we've seen people leaving San Francisco in droves. If people only need to be in their office on a limited basis, we believe that the relative attractiveness of further out housing and residential markets becomes, you know, rises correspondingly with that because commute times will fall as fewer people are commuting and become less of a critical function to everyday decision. It's not an everyday decision. Given all this, given what you've looked at, and certainly it's hard to look at this data and to look at anecdotally what all of us are experiencing and not believe that there is a fundamental kind of restructuring of all the asset classes, uh, some to the positive, some to the negative, but there is a change in the landscape. What are some of the key indicators or key data that you are watching and that we should pay attention to over the next six 12, 18 months to help us understand uh, where things are going? Sure. I mean, one of the key real-time indicators we're looking at is foot traffic data and foot traffic you know, relative performance between CBDs and suburban and, and even further out than that areas. Uh, just to get a gauge of are people returning to the CBDs and if so, in what capacity is there Disparities across markets. Uh, one thing we've sort of noticed is there's been a little more return in the Sunbelt measures than there has in the key gateway markets. So that's been an interesting dynamic where the key gateway markets just continue to show up as, as laggards in sort of the real-time merits. The other thing, I mean, is just keeping an eye on COVID cases and vaccination rates. Um, the longer this is with us, the more likely behavior shifts and that flow through to real estate is going to be permanent, um, the more transitory it is, the more likely you see a reversion to pre-pandemic behavior. So that those are the two real-time metrics we're looking at. And then sort of the key, you know, fundamentals indicator across commercial estate, how's absorption doing in the CBD, how's le how are leasing volumes shaping up as we come into 2021 here, you know, leasing really dried up uh, in the middle of last year is a little pickup towards the end, but you know, does that look as we sort of get some greater visibility towards the exit ramp from our current situation? Well, it's a lot to think about and uh, so not all of it easy. I think there's a lot of uh, difficult decisions that need to be made and, and a lot of I, we need to look at data. And I, I think this is perhaps a, a lesson for all of us in real estate. Uh, we haven't always used data to drive our decision making, but it seems this is a time more than ever. Uh, for us to not rely simply on our gut uh, as we look at investing. Um, 
Well, I encourage everyone who's listening to this podcast, make sure that you take a look at the winter issue of A Fire Summit and read Chris's uh, really outstanding piece uh, on office uh, and how it's changing. Uh, office Pace is the name of the article. And uh, there are two charts in there that I think are very uh, illuminating in terms of what's going on and should be a, a part of everyone's risk analysis as they look at their portfolios and they look at their investment strategy. So again, thank you, Chris, for sharing so much information and for being a part of the AFIRE podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice to this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the AFIRE podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the AFIRE podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. To learn more about the AFIRE podcast, including underwriting and guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.